Hello and welcome to the Future Self podcast. My name is Emma Hudson. I am a filmmaker and currently a master's student in anthropology at the Australian National University. My recent films have told stories of people's involvement in extinction and ecology, as well as indigenous knowledge and embodiment of an ancestral world. Today I am speaking with Rolf de Heer, the film director behind Charlie's Country, Ten Canoes, The Tracker and more. Rolf's films have won honours at festivals such as Cannes and Venice and the AACTA Awards here in Australia. Welcome, Rolf. Thank you, Emma. You and I have something in common, which is that we both studied at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And I find this a bit amusing because I think we are about to discuss how quickly things you learn in institutions get thrown out the window when you begin to work intimately with Indigenous culture and stories. So before we focus on questions, I feel it is important to mention that you and I are here to talk about Indigenous stories as non-Indigenous storytellers, a distinction to maintain always both in anthropology and film. But as an ongoing cultural space, it is so valuable to hear experiences from people who are engaging in different ways and fields. And I'm sure you have big stories to describe moments that worked and ones that didn't. So to begin, I thought we could start by learning how your film practice specifically intersected Indigenous culture. What was the first experience you had that awakened you to make a story with Indigenous people? Ah, um, the first real connection I had, this is apart from, I look at this stuff in, in hindsight, and it's all a very long time ago, but the very first film I made, I cast an Indigenous person that I happened to know into a role that would normally have been occupied by a, a white actor. Um, and, and I just did it because it felt right. It's not that I had any great awareness at the time, but, but I think in hindsight that I must have been on the way, um, even as far back as that, because that was in, in the 80s. Um, but the first real awakening, I think, was when I was commissioned to write a screenplay by, by a producer who did the commissioning, which was about a white cabin boy who was washed up on, on the North Queensland coast um, before there had been white contact up there. Uh, and that was the, the premise of, of the film. That was to be the premise of the film. And, and I, I grappled with that. It was being made with a community, um, Hope Vale, and I went up there, as I was meant to do, and spent two weeks, two or three weeks up there. And the first week achieved absolutely nothing. And the second week achieved very little apart from having learnt to simply sit and wait. And the third week I went bush with, with a small sub mob and learnt a lot. And it did awaken me to a great extent because I then had 
a, a lot of thinking to do about how to how to structure this this project uh, and I rebelled against the idea of the cabin boy being the lead uh, and I rebelled against the idea of it effectively being in English um, I had seen dances with wolves not so at around that time and I rebelled against that uh, the 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 falseness of the uh, Native American tribe all learning English very quickly so they could have the film in, in English and the the uh, the main white character uh, not learning the indigenous language which is what would have happened and so I was grappling with large concepts already back then uh, about how to do this um, you know, a big budget film was not going to work in Indigenous language, and and I think I mean it never got it never got to a full screenplay stage because the the producer stopped paying me. But I'd, I'd taken the leap. I'd done a lot of research. Uh, I'd learned a lot of things that I was completely unaware of in terms of Australian uh, history, and that was around about 1991, uh, 92 in that in that time. Um, and it shifted my whole way of thinking about all of that and it was really the first major step in an evolution that's still happening. And relationships in our lives are a key to understanding the way things came to be. So how has one relationship to an Indigenous person that you've met along the way shaped your filmmaking practice? I, I could talk about the people back there in Hope Vale. Um, but it was not as stand out as my relationship with David Gulpalil. Um, out of that Hopevale experience, I, I had written a little short treatment, uh, which was the tracker, that effectively sat on a shelf for 10 years. And, and so 10 years later, it came off the shelf through circumstance and was financed through circumstance, and then I could cast it. And it was not even written yet, but it was financed. And and I thought, okay, well, look, let's um, you know, let's look at the casting of this. And and the tracker was not so much the lead, but was sort of equal lead to an extent. And and I thought, well, you know, David is the best. I didn't know him, um, but I might as well cast him because he is the best. Um, and he looks fantastic now. He's getting older, and all of this sort of business. Um, and then I had opportunity to meet with him and um, that first meeting was fraught. I didn't understand what he said. I didn't know what to say to him. Uh, I had nothing culturally in common with him. And it was only when at the end he invited me to come to his country that it started to make sense. And I thought, yes, I have to go because otherwise how can I direct this man? Um, and and I spent a week with David up in Ramanginning and that's where profound transformation could happen. And I love that word fraught because I'm just going to use that for my next question. I loved hearing you say once in an interview that, quote, some things that work best in Aboriginal culture don't work in our culture at all. And stuff that are essential in our culture don't work in Aboriginal culture at all. What is a moment you can recall during the making of your films that expresses this idea? Um, 
the entire process of doing 10 canoes had one of those factors involved and and that is the way time is used um and is thought about and and uh is prioritized and and yeah i learned quite quickly that i had to throw out any notion that i had of how to make time work because it simply didn't uh, in in the Western in my you know Western way of making a film you can't you can't do that and in filmmaking it's hierarchical and time driven and in Indigenous life in Ramanginning it's collaborative and time means very little and so whole concepts of of how to behave are different so that. Um, you know, we would fix the car uh, in case we needed to go fishing, in case we wanted to go fishing. And over there, when you want to go fishing, you fix the car. And so, you know, you plan a fishing expedition for the next day, but the car doesn't work, and then you fix the car, and it might take two or three days to fix the car, and then you go fishing. It's a completely different way of living and, and, and doing. And it, it really was a question of how do I harness how do I combine those two things, uh, those two ways of seeing the world and get a film made that they want made uh, but not impose our way of doing things because otherwise it's not going to work. And it's an amazing collision because, as you said, film production is notoriously pressured by a schedule and money and the reality of time and money is so different for Yungu culture. So for the listener's benefit, you have mainly made films with Yungul people up in Arnhem Land. Could you just describe where that is and what a day might look like when you're there? Uh, it's about 500 kilometres and 37 water crossings east of Darwin. Um, it's in the centre, in central northern Arnhem Land, I suppose, or perhaps slightly towards the eastern part of Arnhem Land. Um, so it's quite remote. Um, what a day might look like? Well, it depends entirely what's going on. Um, it's, it's, you know, there's one supermarket. There's a sort of a takeaway shop. There's a banking branch and there's an art centre and there's a lot of people who live there. And there's very little work um, and everything is frightfully expensive. Um, and it's tough. It's a tough place. It's, uh, yeah. So I'm just going to bring the focus further into the actual making of the film now. This is one of my favorite questions because it's a little bit complicated, <laughs> but perhaps the most vital in both a filmic and cultural sense. Jungle storytelling has strong conventions that are often pertinent to ancestral law. And it is very different to dramatic structures used across popular films that we are trained in when we study storytelling and cinema. So how do you script a story that is permitted and enjoyed by a younger audience, as well as satisfying a non-Indigenous audience who are so used to Western narrative structures? Um, with Ten Canoes, I understood that this should not be a film that I wanted to make, 
but that this should be my enabling the mob to make the film that they wanted to make. Now, there's much less certainty about the film that they wanted to make in a specific sense, but in a general sense, I could work out what what it was that they wanted and check it with them, constant checking, constant checking. And, and so what they wanted was a film that would work in the cinemas of Australia and the rest of the world, but would also work for them there and for their children. And so I understood that structurally I had to leave behind what uh, what I would have been used to doing and and try and make something that would fit both. Okay. There's a film recently that came out called High Ground, which was also made in a very collaborative way with the Indigenous mob. But what the Indigenous mob wanted was a sort of a Western. Okay. And so it's clearer how to do that. With, with Ten Canoes, it was not so clear. And so the scripting process took a year or so of me going up there for a week or two weeks and then coming back and you know, doing some work and then going back again at least once a month, if not more, um, and constantly questioning and asking and, and, and learning as much as I could about the, the way that they told stories. And, and, and like there was a, there was a teacher up there, a white teacher, who was quite helpful and, and she would say, look, you know, this is what they say uh, and this is how they tell story and, and you think, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's not, it's, they don't. Okay, when it was pointed out to me that the language had no real conjunctions like because and so on, then I began to understand what I needed to do more, um, which is to accumulate information, not have cause and effect in the same way. So it, it, it was a sort of a, you know, an evolution of my learning and my interpreting what it was that they precisely said they want, you know, what, what really did they mean when they said they want this or that. And, yeah, a lot of thinking and listening and, and consulting. That's really how, how it got there. Absolutely. And uh, that really resonates with me because, you know, when I, when I first made a film, up in northeast Arnhem Land, I had an assemblage, and by the end of the film, it was like I used to describe to people it's like picking up chapter three and making it chapter one, and then chapter one suddenly chapter 10, and chapter 10's eight. And so the sequences, I just looked at the end, I was like, oh my god, this is the most abstract thing I've ever made. But it was so important, right? Because it was such a learning in integrating storytelling conventions that we're not used to and and really shaking off, I suppose, that that habit that we get into when we learn a certain way. And Ten Canoes, I think we should stay there because it's an amazing way of learning how these two cultures come together. The film was inspired by a photograph taken by the anthropologist Donald Thompson, I believe, who recorded extensively in Arnhem Land during the 30s and 40s. So could you explain how his work contributed to ideas in the film? Um, I think the true inspiration of the film was really, was simply David. Um, he wanted to make a film uh, on his country with his people, with his mob. 
and I thought about and, and I, look, I'd been up there uh, before the tracker, and there's no way that I wanted to make a film up there. Um, but he was very persistent, and eventually, you know, I relented and went up there. Um, we talked and we consulted with other elders and so on. There was a result committee. Um, and the existence of the, the photographs was not even known to me at that point. And we worked out that, you know, what, what I should be aiming to do in terms of writing a script, because that was my job, was to write a script, uh, because you know, David knew we needed a script. Nobody else knew that, but David did. Um, and we talked about having a story, you know, and what did they want? Well, they wanted a story where the white people came in and massacred everybody. Uh, and it was a big surprise and nobody realised it was coming. And so we'd worked out this story where there was a sort of a romance, if you'd like, you know, and sort of a young romance as much as that is possible. And, and then because of circumstances, you know, there's, there were some white people turn up and, and, and one of them had a piss on sacred ground and got speared and then they all disappeared, the white people, the four of them. And then a little while later, they, a whole lot, 30 or 40 of them came back and killed everybody. That was what, that was the, at, at the point at which the romance, the, the Yolnu romance was about to come to a conclusion that's when everybody got killed and uh, and you never found out what, what the romance was going to be, you know, where it would have gone. Uh, and I guess it's something of what they felt about things, you know. But uh, the film shifted. Um, oh, okay, okay. Before that, then, then with that in mind, I was about to go on a plane I was there the last morning and that had all been agreed to. And then David turned up just before I went and he said, we need 10 canoes. And I said, oh, we need 10 canoes. Why do we need 10 canoes? He said, oh, for the film. I said, David, we don't even, even know what this proper story is, you know. How can we need 10 canoes? And he sort of, you know, as if I was an idiot. And he went off and he came back. And he put the 10 canoe photos in front of me, the Donald Thompson one. And it was just this moment where I thought, my God, if we can go there, I understand now what he's talking about. If we can go there, this could be extraordinary. And then there were about a dozen other photographs. And um, over time, I mean, quite quickly, David, uh, um, um, uh, he got into strife with his community and he left the community, but by then I had enough connection in there to keep going. Um, over time, the the purposes of the film changed. What they wanted was to end the massacre, disappeared, um, and the photos took over in a way. And in the end, I ended up going to the repository of the in Victoria Museum of all the Donald Thompson photographs, and there are about 4,000 of them taken in Ramanginning. And I went through them and I brought more extra ones back and different people had been uh, identified in them by anthropologists working with them and working up there. And like, you know, the, the casting of the 10 canoeists was 
by not I didn't do the casting. They did the casting themselves because I'm related to that one, I'm related to that one, and so I'm going to be him and I'm going to be him. Okay, that's my ten canoeists. Um, and so the the and I understood also that there was something about them that was had a sort of a sacred uh, place in their culture, um, and that they expected the film to be some sort of reflection of that. Um, and so once we got over the problems of that that uh, of what sort of story to tell and how to tell it and, and necessarily it became partly in black and white and partly in colour to solve those problems, the, 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 what, what they wanted problems. Um, once that happened, I, could, I knew some of it had to be in black and white because those photos are in black and white. And so we, we even reconstructed scenes from, from the photographs uh, and they could say, yes, that scene is from that and, and, and so on. And so they became very, it's not only did they become very important, but I just don't believe it would have been possible to make a film remotely like that without them uh, because nobody would have had the confidence of going in and, and, and trying to recreate what it was like uh, with any sort of veracity and, 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 and so on. But with those photographs, we could do that. Um, we could get the canoes right um, because there was lots of photos of, the, of those swamp canoes and it's the only place in the world that they exist is that design for that swamp. Um, and we were able to reconstruct them because we had the photos. So they were terribly important. Yeah, and they are, you know, the whole Thompson collection is so cinematic and so, so evocative of a past time. And I can also imagine that you know, making props for the film is a sort of way of reinvigorating Jungle knowledge. Um, I, I just have to say, I loved that idea that you were just not the director when it came to casting, because it is so inextricable to Jungle kin relations and family orders. So you probably had no control when it came to who was playing who. There was no way I could cast because I didn't know how people fitted into that kinship system and the, and the kinship system as reflected on the screen had to be able to be the same as the kinship system in reality. Um, and so I think the wife number three was the biggest problem. I think there was probably only one person in the universe who was allowed to play that role and eventually they found her and that was it and she was playing it. That was end of story. And I can imagine you had a similar experience with the translation process because Ten Canoes is the first film to be recorded in Aboriginal languages, specifically in Jungle dialects. So I'm just curious to know which dialects you encountered and how this translation process unfolded. The, the translations, we had one go at translating beforehand. Okay, but there was a passage in the script that, you know, where, where the character Mingalulu is meant to say X, Y and Z and it was written in English from stuff that they'd said and research and everything else. Uh, and there were five of us gathered to translate this little paragraph, little paragraph in the script, that's all it was. Um, and it took hours and hours to do it. We had... We had Mingalulu, we had, uh, who had to say the lines, we had Jinger, we had Billy Black, and we had Frances. Now, Frances was a woman and she was 
she was literate, so she was there to write it down. Um, and so everything was a discussion, and uh, eventually we ended up with this this passage written down, like took nearly three hours. And then um, Frances was the only one who could read it, of course, and she began to try and read it back, and she couldn't. She couldn't read it back, it didn't make any sense to her, but more than that, she wasn't allowed to read it back, okay? It was not appropriate for her to read it back, and so she was blocked completely, even though she was given permission by the others to do so, um, her, she just couldn't because it was against culture. Uh, and so in the end, I had to read it back. Um, and, and everybody, of course, falling about laughing because my pronunciation was so awful. Um, and, and I understood we couldn't do it. There was no way we could translate the script because it was half a day, best part of half a day for one little paragraph and still didn't make a lot of sense at the end, having a script because Mengelulu is not literate, so he can't learn it and so on. And so we approach it in a different way, uh, a lot of talking, you know, you know, just talking and then just shooting. And then we had translating happening and we had always at least two people translating, not together, but to translate the same thing to see what they came up with because the language is so different and the cultural concepts in it are so different that that the articulation of things is 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 dependent so much on context and film grabs little bits of context and not the whole context and so uh, you know the classic one was we had the same bit translated where where there's a bit of dialogue and it was translated and one one of the translator translators said um, what he said was uh, nothing like this has ever happened to us before. Okay, so that was written down. Okay, the other translator, what he said was, same passage, I am not responsible for that man's piss. Okay. And so we had these two and it was like, well, what do you do with that? And so we got each of the translators to, to look at the other one and, and, and they, both of them said, oh, yes, well, it can mean that. It can mean that, yes. And so in the end when, when you know, talking with them about it, it was, okay, well, what did you say on set? What did you intend with this? Well, this is what I intended. Ah, yes, well, then it's this one. Or, no, it was this one, not the piece one, the other one. Um, uh, that was, but it, it, it apparently used the word piss to get to the intention. Um, but the intention was, yeah, so it's, look, translations were extraordinary and marvellously illuminating about culture. That's an incredible example. I love that. Here's, here's another fun question. It's a bit more personal. Because filmmaking has a strong linear model in a, in a classical sense, but the personal reality of making a movie is very strange and obscure. <laughs> so did you find that films you thought would be made didn't and films you never thought of making become the ones that we are watching today? Uh, to an extent. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's fairly normal that that happens. I mean, there's a, there's a few films that I have scripts for that that almost got made for various reasons didn't 
10 canoes were certainly a film I was never going to make. Um, you know, I had been up there for that week with David and it was so difficult up there. Um, the mosquitoes and, and, and you know, the climate, the just, you wouldn't ever think of, you know, it's possible to go and make a film up there, you know. So I, I didn't, certainly didn't think it would be. Um, yeah, it's a fairly normal thing uh, where, where something hijacks something else for whatever reason. Um, yeah. And on a final note, discourse around this sort of cultural and creative space is going to change inevitably. But I'm sure there are some principles that stay the same for you when working with Indigenous people and their stories. So what is your advice to a non-Indigenous filmmaker who is interested in creating an Indigenous story for the screen? Um, my advice is don't be. Don't be interested in creating an Indigenous story for the screen. Uh, if you are with Indigenous people who want a story told, it starts to already be a bit different. Uh, I know there's, there's quite a strong movement at the moment where every Indigenous story that's told by a white person robs the Indigenous people of a story being able to be told. I'm vociferously against that because there are many thousands of wonderful Indigenous stories to be able to, to, to make films out of. And every Indigenous story that's not told by a, a white person is probably one that will never be told. Um, but your starting point should be that you are not making this, but that you are the, the means by which they can make it. That would be my advice. That's incredible advice and such, such valuable insight. Rolf, it's been so wonderful talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure, Emma. Thank you. Hello, so it's Ivana here, the producer of Future Self, here with Emma Hudson, who has just finished speaking with Rolf Dehir. Emma, that was a fascinating conversation and it was so interesting to hear this interweaving of your film background with your current um, academic focus on anthropology. Yes, I agree. I think it's really interesting and for those that listened, I think the last question and the answer Rolf gave is so valuable because I suppose for me, the idea of anthropology being integrated in film came naturally. I was making documentaries and there were very complex, I suppose, cross-cultural stories being moved around and I felt that anthropology was such a valuable study to have when making films. And as Rolf said, it's not really something that can just be learnt or written down in some sort of cultural protocol. It's something that comes from experience and actual human connection with people. Mm. So on that note, um, you were saying to me off mic um, earlier about why it was that you uh, wanted to study anthropology 
and its connection to the cross-cultural storytelling that you do in your filmmaking. Uh, would you be able to go into that a little bit here? Yeah, uh, in terms of my films, um, so like Rolf, I studied at the Australian Film Television and Radio School and I love scripted content. Um, I love, you know, the movies that you make for the cinema, but I also felt that I wanted to explore stories that are already out there, um, that are alive and that are still unfolding and being told, and if possible, had the potential to have a cultural and, and social impact for, you know, for the better. And so I uh, made stories where I felt passionate about um, exploring climate and the environment and the Anthropocene. Um, so an obvious connection to anthropology there. And also um, extinction. So a friend of mine uh, made a really wonderful film about the rhinoceros extinction, uh, mainly based in South Africa. And then I had the privilege of going to northeast Arnhem Land and recording an Indigenous story as well. And that was the most challenging experience, I would say, <laughs> if not of just my creative practice of my life. And I felt it was really important to have some anthropological background when I finished that story because, um, you know, you learn certain techniques and tools in anthropology that allow you to go in with the most sensibility that you possibly can. And I think that's really important when you're making films and particularly documentaries, when you're dealing with real people and their lives. Mm. And especially in telling the stories and experiences of Indigenous Australians, um, it feels like that process is even more collaborative, like it's even more important to be so. And I, th I found it really interesting to hear Rolf talking about the casting of Ten Canoes and how um, that sort of that sort of process it really shows how um, you know in telling these sorts of stories the level of control that you might have as a director somewhat goes down or you have to like readjust that and adapt to the circumstances. Yeah, and I suppose on that note, you know, even a a scripted film, um, you know, is obviously fabricated to an extent, but uh, it's it's not really fictional. Um, like Ten Canoes isn't necessarily a, a fictional story. It's really inseparable to the lives of young people, and those kin relations and social organisations don't change. They're predetermined and they're law. And regardless of whether you're making a retrospective film or you're documenting something that's happening here and now, those kin structures are relevant both when you're making a scripted story and when you're living. So I also love that that note because, um, yeah, I felt there was no way that, you know, you can direct that. That's something that is in the hands of Jungle direction, absolutely. Well, I hope that doing the Master of Anthropology um, at ANU is as helpful and valuable to your future filmmaking and, you know, all your other endeavours as 
as you hope it will be. Uh, thank you so much for being on Future Self, Emma. Thank you so much, Ivana.